Whenever an unspeakably tragic event takes place somewhere in the world and it's caught on camera, within an hour of that video being uploaded to the internet, you know that the, the page views climb into the millions. It seems like the more disturbing and horrific and bloody the image, uh, the, the more popular it certainly is, because we have this, this voyeuristic fascination with the physical agony of other people. It's interesting how the mainstream media will try and show as much of the images or the video as possible right up to the point where they, they fear they may offend the, the sensibilities of ordinary people. And yet you notice that the, the line of sensibilities keeps getting further removed, uh, further and further back each decade as it takes more and more bloodlust and uh, sensationality sensationalism to create a buzz. What I want you to recognize as we read through the record of the crucifixion this morning is how understated Mark's retelling of the story is. How he gives virtually no attention to the physical agony of Jesus. How there, there, it lacks all of the sensationalism uh, of the world. How matter-of-fact it is. And instead of providing us with lurid details, he places the points of emphasis uh, in different locations. And it's your job, as I read what is a, a, undoubtedly a very familiar passage, it's your job to listen carefully and discover why why does he place where does he place the emphasis and why does he place it there Mark chapter 15 and and as soon as it was morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate and Pilate asked him are you the king of the Jews and he answered him you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison, uh, there was one who committed murder in the insurrection, a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want for me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, 
the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, nine, nine in the morning, when they crucified him. And the inscription on, of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. You just notice how many times that phrase gets repeated. The King of the Jews. And with them they crucified two robbers. Uh, the w- revolutionaries, rebels, that's what the word is, is used in other places. Uh, two, not two small-time crooks and thieves, but two rebels, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And and this wasn't an eclipse. I mean, we can look back to the astronomical records in 8033 and the, that land we know that the lunar position wasn't right this is this darkness is is uh, it's not natural it's it's a divine darkness that comes across the land kind of like one of the plagues the plagues that hit Egypt and at that hour the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice Eloi Eloi which means the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is he's calling Elijah. And, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see Let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And then Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Let's stop there. When Jesus was about 10 years old, 
growing up as he did in the, the northern part of Israel in the area of Galilee, there was a great battle and the Romans fought against Jewish freedom fighters, a great battle. And the, the Romans won. They rounded up. They captured about 2,000 or so soldiers from that, that area. And what did they do? They constructed 2,000 crosses. And all along the, the roadsides and the hillsides of the region of Galilee, they hung 2,000 men. Um, you just wonder, did it, like, Jesus was probably 10 at the time. Was that a memory that was etched in, in his mind? Uh, the, the Romans crucified a lot of people. So in AD 70, when they sacked the city of Jerusalem, historians tell us that the Romans at that time crucified so many of the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem. So many people, they, they hung. The Romans had to actually stop crucifying them because they ran out of wood. For us, that's a religious symbol. For them, the cross was a political symbol long before it was ever religious. A cross was the ultimate sign of imperial power. The, the cross was, we are in charge, and here is what happens to people who get in our way. You know, the, the victim would have their arms tied to the post, probably with ropes, or, as in this case, you would have a large spike that was hammered through the wrist area, not probably not the hand, because you know, your hand can't support several hundred pounds of pressure they would you know, take the ankles and put them side by side and a spike would either be driven through the side of them, not actually into the wood or, or sometimes foot over foot and into the wood. But the key was that no major arteries were compromised. And if the executioner did his job well, the victim wouldn't bleed quickly to death. Uh, unlike death by firing squad or, or hanging a criminal from the gallows or even beheading somebody, all of which are, are pretty quick means of, of meeting your end. Crucifixion was designed to prolong the death as long as possible. It, it would require the victim to hang there for days in excruciating pain, stark, naked, in the blazing sun, journeying in and out of states of consciousness until they eventually die of asphyxiation. And you you notice that Mark doesn't tell us any of that. I mean, all he says, verse 24, like, and they crucified him. So the emphasis is clearly not put on the physical agony of the cross. Where does Mark then place his emphasis? And the answer to that question is, he places... He, he points your attention to the mockery. We get this mock coronation scene with the soldiers. If you were to uh, interview a Roman soldier on the streets of 
Jerusalem. And you were to ask him the question, so why, why are you guys here? Undoubtedly, he would reply, we are here to keep the peace. We're here to extend and maintain the, the peace and justice. They were effectively peacekeeping forces, or so they would say. Uh, these were soldiers who were living far away from their homes, working in a very dangerous environment, who had probably seen a number of their fellow peacekeepers killed by rebels. And their world is not so different than ours. Peacekeeping forces, then as now, start to build up a backlog of resentment and anger against the people who they are trying to protect. And so they they intensify that that anger by placing a makeshift crown on Jesus' head. Uh, the, we have it during a Good Friday service, the, the mock crown, and you may have seen it on the table before. The, the thorns are extremely long. I've looked at it and I said to myself, there's no way that any bush could grow thorns that long. But it in fact did. And the way that it, we think of a crown, sort of an English crown with a few, uh, I don't know what you call the points on the top of an English crown, crown but, a, but a Roman crown, it, it looks like st- uh, all these different points radiating from the head like, like the, the glow of a sun, the glow of a star. The, this is a makeshift Roman crown. Hail Caesar would have been the way that your Roman centurion would have saluted the emperor. Hail King of the Jews. They mock him instead. They, they place a reed in his hand to be his, his scepter. And then instead of ruling with his iron scepter, he ends up getting, getting beaten by his scepter. They come up close to his face and to, to deliver a, a, an affectionate kiss. And instead of a kiss... They spit on him. And then they pay him homage. They fall down on their knees and they offer to him the the worship that only the emperor deserved. So you read the story and did you see like on every, in every paragraph of the crucifixion account, mockery, humiliation. The passers-by, they wag their heads. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. He, he saved others. He cannot save himself. It's, it's all about the humiliation. Now, why does that matter? John Somerville is a retired history professor at the University of Florida. Taught many years there in Gainesville. One of his exercises in in one of his classes, he would challenge the students to perform a thought experiment with him every every semester. His new students He'd say, "Let's do a little me- uh, mental exercise. Imagine you see a little old lady coming down the street at night, and she's carrying a great big purse. And it suddenly occurs to you that she's very little and very old, and it would be incredibly easy." to knock her over and grab the person and run for it. Easy money, ripe fruit for the picking, pickings. Would you, would you take it? Why or why not? Well, the, the students would normally say, they'd normally give an answer like this. They, they'd, they'd normally think in terms of the welfare 
of the little old lady. Uh, what, what a fright it would cause her to be mugged. I mean, she might undergo a heart attack. Uh, it'd be terribly frightening. Uh, she's, she probably depends on the money. What, what, if, what if this was her only source of income, the students might ask. Uh, if I were in her shoes, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't want to be treated that way. No, I want all else being equal. I want this little old lady to have uh, to have a, a good life. That's, that's the answer the students would normally give. And, th- and then he says, but that is not the answer that anybody in the ancient world or even in large portions of the world today would give. The answer they would give, the answer of o- other cultures, is you wouldn't mug the little old lady because it is shameful. Because it would dishonor your family. Because because it would not be an act of strength. It would be, it would be picking on the little ones. Uh, it, it would be despicable. You would be despised in your tribe or, or in your family. It would dishonor you and your family. There's, you would not do this because... And what he, tried, what he was trying to do is, is show them that Americans think this way. Uh, for our purposes... First century Romans and Jews think very different. What would send shivers down the spine of Mark's audience and of Mark himself? It's not the physical agony, as as terrible as that would be. It is the shame. It is the utter humiliation of being naked and uh, and mocked and dying pitifully and and losing, as they often did... uh, their bowel functions on and and bleeding and vomiting and it's 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 all of that it's 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 the whimpering and the crying and the moaning and the mocking that's what they would hear in in reading this this story it's interesting because that's what the author of the book of hebrews hears he says This is what melts my heart and your heart and makes you want to follow Jesus. Let us run the race with perseverance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before them scorned the, endured the cross, scorning its shame. It was the shame. The second point of emphasis in Mark's retelling of the the crucifixion story, and I I sort of alluded to this as I was reading, nobody in his account who calls Jesus the king of the Jews, nobody believed that he was any such thing. Crucifixion, king, it, it contradicted every known form of Jewish expectation about the path their Messiah would take when he would appear in, in the world. Uh, kings don't get crucified. You've heard it many, many times before. Every time they say, Behold, the king of the Jews, snicker, snicker, snicker. Well, Mark and his readers, they, they knew that this was, the, this was the biting irony that these, these people, you know, Balaam's ass, is speaking the truth. I, I don't have the time to expand on this right now, but all of the gospel writers present the cross in terms of an enthronement. You know, 
uh, the cross is Jesus' enthronement. Just like Aslan in the Chronicles never looks so so kingly and lion-like and, and lord of Narnia than he does when he has a shaved mane and shaved whiskers on the stone table. The, the Son of God is never seen, according to the gospel writers, as, as glorious as he is when he is lifted up, the words of John, when he is enthroned upon this cross. Mark is alluding to it in the words of the, the centurion here. He says, who says, surely this man was the son of God. Now, probably what a Roman centurion means by that in its, the original statement probably would have meant something like, surely this man behaves kind of like a divine hero figure out of the, the Greco-Roman tradition. But But Mark, you notice, he pounces on the phrase and says, that's it. This is God, and God is like this. The soldier, what a fascinating character. He was probably one of the men who were rolling dice, playing their, there's just a common dice game that you you would play as a soldier, Gambling for for Jesus' clothes, he he could have been one of the ones who, when Jesus was he, when Jesus says Eloi Eloi, he he calls out the the, the cry of dereliction Psalm twenty two, and s- somebody runs and gets a stick, and what they put at the the end of the stick a sponge, a sponge that they have soaked in in wine vinegar. Wine vinegar was basically what you drank if you were poor or if you were living on a soldier's wage. It was, it was the common drink. And so it, it's possible that you know, maybe this soldier is, is one who at least takes part of, of the passing of the wine vinegar up to the, to the lips of this, this God-forsaken. He just described himself that way. Man. Um, but the reason that you you stick a, a sponge of wine vinegar into a crucified man's face is to keep him alive a little longer, which is not an act of mercy. It's an act of sport. So this soldier, maybe this soldier, maybe he won the, the dice game. Maybe he gave Jesus something to drink. But the, the longer the six hours transpire, the more he begins to question, um, is this really a criminal? Is it? And what is the clinching moment that that sort of makes him change his his mind and his assessment of who this who this man actually is? It is in verse thirty seven where we read, and Jesus uttered a loud cry, that is not a faint gasp. Not, not the type of, of exhausted exhale that you would expect from somebody who had endured hours and hours of, of, of torture. But Jesus utters a loud cry. Think, a.k.a. a victory shout. This, this man who has seen his, his share of death, a soldier who has seen many others crucified and, and die, here is at the end of... Of a, of a suffering victim's life. A victory shout. 
And he says, surely this is God. This is the Son of God. Um, and there we get, I hope you see, the, the, like the, the supreme irony. What looks like the utter powerlessness of God is actually the almighty power of God triumphing over the devil. The death that's, that looks so shameful and humiliating that would send shivers down a person's spine is actually the death that establishes the honor and dignity and glory of God forever. And what appears to be a tool of torture and an electric chair in Auschwitz turns out to be a royal throne this is God, and God is like this. Okay, moving on. Well, let's do a, do a little bit of application here. Suppose you adopted a little girl from an orphanage. You adopted her into your family. You made her one of your children. Treated her every bit as well as other uh, of your other kids you clothed and, and fed her you went to all of her soccer matches you you stayed up late worrying when she was when she was not home past her curfew you you educated her you're not a very rich family but you 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 sacrifice whatever savings you have to eventually send her off to college suppose that it's christmas break and she comes home christmas break of her freshman year and you, you've just discovered that she hasn't been going to class. In fact, she's squandered all the money. She, she's just partied all of the, the $27,000 worth of tuition away. She just completely abused your trust and, and, and wasted it all. And she, your little girl, she comes in and she plops down on the sofa and she says, hey, mom and dad, what's up? It's great to be home. Tell me a little bit about your life. Oh, it's, this, is, this is wonderful. Tell, she, she wants to chat as if nothing is wrong. And the parents, you're looking at each other in disbelief. Like, what about the breach in our relationship? What about the breach of trust? Uh, you, you've trampled on all of the sacrifices and trust that we had bestowed on you. We, 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 I'm sorry, we can't just sit down and chat like there's nothing wrong. The parents are... You're looking at your spouse in disbelief. Well, aren't we in a grumpy mood today? She says. And what's the matter with you guys? Why are you so uptight? And the parents are like, no, the breach needs to be addressed. This is the year 2014. Most people do not do, in a postmodern society, primitive bloody crosses uh, sacrificial blood offerings to to I, mean, I, I most people just that is not on their radar screen why why do we even need that why can't i just why can't i just go to god when i want to because god is a person he's personal he's not an it he's a, he's a he and when we when we break the relationship and breach the trust, it's, it's just simply not good enough to expect that we get uh, unmitigated access to somebody that we've trampled on. 
Or to put it another way, if we change the illustration a little bit, what if your little girl hasn't just been skipping class, but what if she's become a criminal? She's injuring and exploiting other people. She's a fugitive of justice, and she plops down on on the sofa. It's, It's like, hey, we can't just sit down and talk. I can't hide you from the law. So, so much is happening on the cross of Jesus Christ. We, in the realm of theology, call this different uh, doctrines or, or theories of the atonement. Some things that are happening, Jesus is reconciling the breach between us and God. Jesus is is tearing the veil of the temple in two and, and providing access into the presence of God. Jesus is satisfying the demands of justice. What Mark is, he, I think Mark is showing us that especially the fact that Jesus serves as our substitute. I'll give you an example of this from the story. Barabbas. Bar is the Hebrew word for son. Abba, Hebrew word for father. His name means son of the father. Uh, Barabbas, we just read, is a revolutionary. I mean, he is the type of guy that ought to be crucified. He is a a murderer and a a revolutionary rebel. rebel. In our modern lingo, he would be considered a terrorist. This bar Abbas, the son, a son of the father, deserves to die. Instead, the the son of the father dies. And this, this false... This false betraying son goes free. Uh, it's a substitution. Jesus takes Barabbas' place. You say, well, how can one man at one time enter the world to bear the sins of the world? How could that be possible that one man would be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world? I find it every bit as mysterious as you do. The Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus as having been slain before the foundations of of the world. What an interesting phrase. I thought Jesus was slain in probably April of AD 33. Paul is saying that there's a sense that he was slain before you and I ever existed and there was ever ever a cosmos, ever a Milky Way. This was God's plan for the universe before anything was ever created, that this lamb would be slain. It was God's strategy. That is the storyline that God was writing for the book that he's always been writing. Augustine famously said that the cross is a pulpit from which Christ preaches his love. And so, I mean, ultimately the story that God was writing is a love story. (laughs) It wouldn't have been a love story if Jesus died of cancer. Now, maybe he could have died of cancer. Maybe he could have taken his own life. He might have died of poison and ministered to him by Judas or Herod, but instead he gives his life as a ransom for many. The, the cross is the pulpit, and the title of the sermon is the substitutionary love of the Son of the Father for the Barabbases of the world.
1857, archaeologists were excavating an ancient building in the city of Rome when they came across graffiti that had been engraved or etched into the plaster walls of the building. There's debates about how far back it goes. Some have said late first century, others have said sometime in the the third century, but it's very old, and and maybe you've seen the pictures of it before. It's called the Alexa Menos Graffito. It's the earliest known pictorial representation of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's an interesting drawing. It has a, a boy standing in an attitude of worship before the figure of a man who is hanging on a cross. But instead of the the head of a man being on its body, instead the crucified victim has the head of a donkey. And the, the inscription that is written underneath in very crude Latin uh, letters reads, Aleximenos worships his God. It's probably not that far of not that much of a stretch to kind of reconstruct the, the original historical setting. You can almost imagine a, a bunch of boys taunting their, this little page boy, Alexa Minos. They're, they're mocking their Christian friend. You know, what sort of God would get himself crucified? Only a jackass would do that. You, know, you worship that kind of God. Incidentally, as the archaeologists continued to excavate, they, they found in an, a more inner chamber in this building another inscription, and it reads, Aleximenos Fidelis. Fidelis, Fidelis. Aleximenos is faithful. I think what it ultimately comes down to is that there are two kinds of people in the world today. There are those for whom the the cross of Jesus Christ is utter foolishness. And there are those for whom the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And and for whom the cross means everything to them. Charles Spurgeon famously said, he said, I want the cross of Jesus Christ to be painted on my eyeballs. (laughs) He said, I, I want the cross of Jesus to be tattooed on my eyelids. I I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Most of the the, most faiths and religions of the world, they they usually choose a symbol for for their religion that's a little more positive and victorious. You think of the the crescent and the star. What what does that symbolize in Islam? It symbolizes the, the great sovereign power of Allah who created who created um, the celestial bodies. The, the lotus blossom, if you look at the statue of the Buddha near the, the base of the statue, you see the, the lotus blossom petals. Each blossom, as they grow up, demonstrating a greater stage of personal self-enlightenment. Even the Star of David, you've got the two equilateral triangles superimposed on one another. Have you ever counted up how many sides there are in two equilateral triangles that make up the Star of David? Twelve, representing the twelve tribes of Israel uh, who are still around. That, I mean, 
a sheer, sheer miracle. Why do we get a cross? Well, when I see, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, it tells me that this is God and this is what God is like. Just and loving, weak, weak and strong, humiliated, full of love and mercy. You can have your crescent, your lotus blossom, your star of David. Give me a cross, an old rugged cross.